Hey, Soakers. Welcome to Bath and Body Parts. Last week, we told you about missing San Antonio teenager Nicholas Barclay, who miraculously turned up in Linares, Spain, three years after disappearing. But what seemed too good to be true actually was. When we left off last week's episode, private investigator Charlie Parker had just heard Nicholas's imposter confess. His name was Frederick Borden, and he was wanted by Interpol. heard Frederick confess, he slipped off privately to call Agent Fisher. And she was actually at that time trying to get a warrant for his arrest because she had just gotten the results back that proved that he was not Nicholas Barclay. Special agents arrested Frederick later that day at Beverly's home. And here we have to take a big step back and journey back to talk about Frederick Bourdin and who he was and how he ended up posing as Nicholas Barclay. Frederick was born on June 13th, 1974, near Paris. His mother, Ghislaine, was poor. His father was a married Algerian immigrant. Ghislaine never told the father about Frederick. And when he was a baby, Ghislaine would go out often and party and spend all night out. And after just two and a half years, her parents called Protective Services and Frederick moved in with them instead. And Frederick says he was never shown love. He says his grandparents were racist toward his father. They didn't want him. They had no affection for him. As a child, he was an outcast. So he started making up stories about who he was. And this became an obsession for him, creating fake identities, manipulating people, and convincing them to believe his stories. He told his grandparents that he had been molested, but they didn't believe him. And he ended up getting into a lot of trouble at school. So he was sent to a children's home when he was just 12 years old. He ran away and he was found wandering and he told the police that he was a British boy named Jimmy Sale. His accent and lack of proper English gave it away and he was sent back to the home. But after that, he had a history of running away, creating identities, and ending up in different shelters and homes. And he says that he was looking for, quote, the perfect shelter. He also said that for as long as he can remember, he wanted to be somebody else. He embodied this fully, creating characters to fool police whenever he wanted to. And when he was caught, he would just confess and move on and do it again. According to the New Yorker article, The Chameleon, by the time Frederick had turned 18, he had pretended to be more than a dozen fake children. But now he was an adult, and for the first time, he was on his own without being able to rely on the system. So he decided, you know, I don't want to be an adult. I would rather be a child. And so he continued pretending to be one, making up new identities every time. And he even once called the authorities pretending that his own body had been found in the hopes of them having him declared legally dead. So we're seeing this was not just a one-off. This was not just, I got to get out of a sticky situation. This was like his whole life. Yeah. Now, Interpol was well aware of him. He had racked up these legal offenses. 
you know, none of these are felonies or anything. He's just pretending to be people that don't exist. So he's well known for this within Interpol. He's getting caught, but he's not considered necessarily a high-level threat or anything. Right. Newspapers published articles about him, and he even appeared on a French television show called Everything is Possible, where they highlighted his history and asked him to explain why he had done these things. And he told them that he was just searching for a family, for a home, for love. And the creators of the show actually really felt for him. They kind of felt like this was a heartfelt person who really was just lost. And they even gave him a job. But before long, he was back out on the street pretending to be other children. And as he did so, he got better and better and better at what he did. He learned how to manipulate people and how to convince them that he was who he said he was. He would establish himself as a child right off the bat so that people were not threatened by him. He would act scared so they wanted to comfort and trust him. He would give them just enough information, but vague information and not go into any specifics so he wouldn't get caught in a lie. And that's extremely smart in that situation because the police in these countries, they're not going to look at a child who is on the streets and be super aggressive to them the way that maybe they would be to an adult who was out on the streets. Exactly. Being a child comes with its own level of protection in some avenues, you know? Yes. So it is It is quite smart. It is. And he is interviewed in the documentary, The Imposter, which you can see on Amazon Prime. And yeah, he goes into a lot of detail of how he yes. kind of formed these things in his mind and how he developed this. And in the New Yorker article, The Chameleon, he's also interviewed and he gives a lot of insight into himself and into his thought process and how he became this manipulator, basically. Yeah. Now, when he was 23 years old, he found himself in Linares, Spain, and he faked a phone call to the authorities, claiming to be a tourist who had found a lost child. And that's when he was taken to the shelter, which is what he wanted. And he didn't talk a lot. He gave very few answers. By this point, this was a very crucial part of his game because it was getting harder to pretend that he was a child as he aged. So kind of not speaking really played into what he was trying to do. But the staff at the shelter had doubts about him. He's looking older at this point. A judge is not sure that he's as young as it says he was. And they gave him 24 hours to tell them who he was and prove that he was actually a child or they were going to take his fingerprints. And I really wish they'd just taken his fingerprints because the story would be a lot different. Yes, yes. But with his record, he couldn't let that happen. So he told them that he was American, that he was a runaway. And he said that he was willing to contact his family, but he really wanted to be the one to do it. And because of the time difference, he had to wait until the next day. So he spent that night trying to figure out what to do because he knew that he needed to give them something. So he decided that this time, instead of creating an identity, he needed to find one. And that night, he snuck into an office in the shelter, and he started looking at police stations in America and calling them, pretending to be Jonathan Duran. He claimed that he was the director of the shelter and that they had found an American boy of about 14 to 16 years old and were trying to track down who he was. He would give a description of himself and ask if they had any missing children that matched that description. Now, the police stations he called told him that there's no way they could track someone down like that. 
you know, there are so many missing children. Yes. And it's just not the way that they could go about it. But they did tell him to call the Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And he contacted them. And that's where somebody found Nicholas Barclay. And a woman told him, you know, it could be this person missing. He's going to be about 16 years old. And he asked them to fax him a picture and any information about the boy. So she faxed him a copy, which came out in black and white, of the missing persons flyer. And then she said that she would overnight him the actual physical copy of the flyer as well. And after receiving the facts, he's looking and thinking, yeah, you know, okay, this can work, this can work. So he called her back and said, I can't believe it, but we have good news. Nicholas Barclay is standing right here. That set the events in motion. The woman from the center gave him the number for the San Antonio Police Department. And he called them and pretended to be a police officer himself, reporting that they had found Nicholas. And Carrie ended up being called and contacted Fisher and made plans to fly out to Linares to get him. Now, the next day, he managed to get the incoming package with the color copy of the flyer. And when he looked at the picture, he thought that he was done for. It was like that scene in Arrested Development when Job is like, I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> like, because... Because again, they looked... Nothing, Nothing alike. No, not at all. Like, it is so far off. But, you know, the process was already happening for him. And so he bleached his hair blonde and asked a girl at the shelter who did tattoos to replicate the tattoos that he had read about in Nicholas's file. Again, very smart. Yes, very. He was getting apprehensive, though, because this was turning into much bigger than what he imagined it would be. And he wasn't really sure how he was going to get himself out of it. I don't think he thought about the long-term no. consequences no. of his actions. He was just trying to stave off yep. the authorities in the immediate. Yep. And then he's like, oh, crap. Uh, they're going to come for me. Like, yeah, this is a big situation. Like, this has consequences. Maybe I should have thought of that before. You know, he ended up running away from the American embassy, but they found him that same day. And when Carrie came, he was sure that he was done for. He knew that there was no way that Nicholas's sister would think that this was Nicholas standing in front of her. And so when she embraced him, he was pretty stunned. And he really listened to the details that she gave him about the family photos that were used to identify, you know, those pictures that the Spanish judge had asked him about, those five photos. Carrie gave him all of that information, trying to rekindle his memory of his family. And so he was able to identify people in the photos. But he does say in the documentary, out of the five photos, he was correctly able to identify four. Mm -hmm. But then on the last one, he made a mistake. But by that point, they were like, yep, that's him. He knows, right. he knows these people. That led to him being declared a U.S. citizen. And again, when he flew in, he thought this was over. But he was amazed that the family also believed that this was him. He was simultaneously afraid and overwhelmed and grateful because for the first time, he actually had a family and friends in a real home. And he really could not believe his luck. But once in America, Frederick struggled with multiple things. The nerves, the weight of what he was doing really got to him. You know, before he had considered his 
crimes, victimless crimes. He was just inventing personas. But now he was manipulating a family into thinking they had found their lost relative. And he also just found it very difficult to adjust to normal life. He'd been living on the streets or in the system for so long that he felt kind of restricted from family life. And he started getting into trouble at school. He ended up being busted for speeding. The stress was really building. And as Charlie and Agent Fisher started to figure him out, it was really skyrocketing. And that is around the time where he cut his face because it was just all very overwhelming. Now, according to Frederick, after he ended up moving in with Beverly, she looked at him like, quote, a ghost, not like a son. He says that one night she got drunk and screamed at him, I know that God punished me by sending you to me. I don't know who the hell you are. Why the fuck are you doing this? Wow. And he also says that around the time that Fisher tried to get the DNA samples and Beverly laid on the floor and refused, he started to get very suspicious. And at that point, he's trying to figure out why the family is keeping him and protecting him Yeah, because he started to believe that they didn't believe him after all. And maybe they had a more nefarious reason for pretending that he was Nicholas. He thinks it was to cover up the murder of Nicholas. And he says that by the time he met up with Charlie Parker, he was actually afraid of the people he had found refuge with. And that's part of why he willingly gave himself up. So it's like as if this story didn't already have enough layers and messed up in this, like we add this, like, woo, that's yeah. a lot to take in. So as we know, he ended up being arrested by Special Agent Fisher, and he was sentenced to six years in prison. But after his arrest, Frederick contacted the San Antonio police and told them about his suspicions. He claimed that there was no way that the family actually believed him because he did not look anything like Nicholas. He acted nothing like him, and he was very clearly from a different country. And so he said that he believed that Jason or Jason and Beverly had killed Nicholas and that everyone in the family knew. He even says that Carrie was in on this. He believes that when she brought the pictures and she's like showing him the family pictures, that she's trying to plant it into his mind so that he can convince them. Now, Frederick wasn't actually the only one who believed this. Charlie Parker and Nancy Fisher had both come to that same conclusion. Because at first, they both just thought that the family was in denial, that they wanted this to be Nicholas so badly that they were overlooking the obvious signs that he wasn't Nicholas. But after being told about the doctor's evaluation and then acting like the conversation had never happened, and after being contacted by Charlie and still not believing it, both Charlie and Fisher found it suspicious. In fact, even before Frederick's claims, Charlie was looking into the family And he kept going back to the report that Jason made about Nicholas breaking in a few months after his disappearance. To him, it seemed like he was trying to convince the police that Nicholas was still alive. After Frederick's arrest and accusation, the family was questioned, but there was no real evidence against them. So Fisher brought Beverly in for a polygraph, which she passed. Fisher pushed the polygraph administrator saying there was no way she could pass. Try this again. And she passed again. She asked if there was any way that Beverly could still be lying, and he said yes, if she was on drugs. 
So they waited a little while until the effects of the drugs would have worn off and they tried to test her again. And this time, her answers were off the charts, showing that she was lying. And the agent said, quote, it appears you know where your son is. And Beverly ended up running out of the polygraph test screaming. If you'd like to support the podcast, get access to bonus content and extra mini true crime cases, plus get access to our exclusive Bath and Body Parts bath bombs, we'd love to have you join our Patreon as a soaker, super soaker, or bath bomber. Visit patreon.com slash bath and body parts to learn more. Next, they wanted to bring Jason in for a polygraph, but he died of a drug overdose. And remember, he had been clean. He had been in rehab. He was working at the facility. Yeah. Now, during the filming of the documentary, The Imposter, Charlie Parker actually contacted the family that lived in the home where Beverly and Jason and Nicholas had lived. And the man who was living there said that when they moved in, the dog had gone crazy on a specific spot in the backyard and he had actually seen some like blue tart material and they dug it up, but they found nothing. With no evidence, the investigation into the family was closed. Nicholas's case dropped back off the radar and it's still unsolved today. Now, after Frederick was arrested, he ended up being busted for calling hundreds of families of missing children, pretending to be them, from prison. And like in the documentary, the phone that he's calling them from is in his cell. And I was like, do we just put phones in people like... You're just calling willy-nilly. He's calling hundreds of people. Like, what in the world? Yeah. And also, they record and track the phone calls. So I don't know how he's calling hundreds of people and nobody's noticing. This is prison. This isn't like, it's not just an apartment. You're not just doing whatever you want. Like, you're in prison. So that that was very odd to me. Yeah. Now, after Frederick's six-year sentence was served, he returned to France. And within three months, he was arrested again for stealing the identity of another missing child, this time a 14-year-old. And by this time, he's 30? Yeah, I'm like, he's 30 years old. I'm sorry. We cannot be passing ourselves off as teenagers. It just, no. it, it's not how it and works. And he never looked like a teenager. <laughs> he was 23. No, no. Uh. There are pictures that you you can look up the photo of him. I don't remember, like, they take a photo of him in a scarf. Mm, yes. And you can look it up. It's like one of the first Google images that come up. And it's like, if that is supposed to be a teenage boy... Just use your eyes, people. <laughs> well, he's like one of the, you know, how they cast like 30 and 40 year olds as teenagers on TV. Oh my God. Like he, yes, he would be like on Riverdale, this like 40 year old <laughs> man playing a high school student. Like for real, for real, for real. Oh my gosh. It's, there's just so much to unpack about his psychology. And he currently lives in France with his wife and kids. And again, he's very open about his story. He's been interviewed in both the New Yorker article and the documentary. He's actually very well known there. Yeah. And he maintains that although he was a manipulator, he was not a monster. And he still adamantly maintains that Nicholas's family knows what happened to him. (sighs) I feel like we've got to talk through theories and our thoughts on this case. Oh my gosh, yes. So much to talk about. (laughs) So much. 
So the big question is, did the family actually have anything to do with Nicholas's disappearance? Or were they just so strongly wanting this to be Nicholas that they were in denial? (sighs) I mean, denial is very strong. And I can easily see how you would fool yourself into believing this. When you want something so bad, sometimes you can't see what's in front of you, right? Sometimes you want someone in your life to be good for you and you put up with a lot of shit and you don't realize like that they're not a good person for you. But you know, if you want it so bad, you can convince yourself of a lot of things. But one of my big red flag like moments in this case is, okay, so Nicholas calls home to get a ride home from the basketball court and Jason answers the phone. Why didn't Jason go and pick him up? Yeah, I don't know if Jason didn't have a car or didn't have a driver's license. I mean, he's 24 years old. Right. You would assume that he could at least drive Beverly's car, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, that kind of makes me... That one's a little weird. Weird. And also, like, wake her up. You know, I I don't know. I don't know. Although I can see why he wouldn't wake her up if it's just a few miles and he can walk. I don't know. I don't know. I... Yeah, I, I, I mean, it is the 90s and he's 13. Like, we yes. walked everywhere. We were allowed to yeah, yeah, yeah. do what we wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, I just don't know. It's one of those, this is a case where I just, I do not know what I think happened. Because I go back and forth. Because denial is very strong. And I do, yes. I can see, I can see that they just fooled themselves. Yeah. But there are just some red flags. Yeah. And Beverly actually in the documentary, she's interviewed and she says something that's very interesting to me. Yes. The way that she words it is so strange. She says, quote, if Jason did something to Nicholas, I didn't know about it. And then she pauses, and then she says, and I can't imagine Jason ever doing that. It's just not in his makeup. Hmm. People say things differently. People approach situations differently. Mm -hmm. But wouldn't your first instinct be to say, no, he would never do that? Right. Not, if he did it, I didn't know about it? Right. With Jason not being alive and us not being able, we don't have any, you know, interviews with him, no polygraph, no nothing. Do I feel like he's almost like a an easy... Scapegoat. Yeah. Yeah. An easy scapegoat. Yes. Absolutely. Do I think that maybe like the call about him breaking into the garage, about Nicholas breaking into the garage, like that police report, I do agree that it does seem kind of like a little suspicious, like you were trying to make it seem like he's still around. Yeah. You know, he's he's breaking into the garage. I don't think that Nicholas would have run away no. from the home if he was breaking into the garage. But do I think it's possible that some other blonde person sure. broke into the garage and he just kind of saw a blonde yeah. figure running away and he thought it was Nicholas? I think that's... Yep. Completely possible. That's possible. I just don't know. I know. If it was just Frederick saying this, I don't think I would believe it at all. Right. But also Charlie Parker and Nancy Fisher also came up with the same conclusion that someone in the family knows something about where Nicholas is. And 
I feel like that may be like, as far as I'm willing to go in my statement about how I feel about this, I feel like it is definitely plausible that someone in the family knows what happened to Nicholas. I think it's plausible. I'm torn. I can see it either way. Me too. The two things that really lead me back to, I just don't know, this is suspicious, is the way Carrie acted after the phone call from Fisher where she just shows up and the DNA thing where Beverly lays down on the ground and refuses to give DNA. Yes. But do I think that a very strong denial response and a very strong coping mechanism could be responsible for both of those things? Sure. Yes. Yeah. And what really gets me, though, is that it just doesn't make any sense yeah. that they would take him in and say that this was him. The case was already kind of yeah. off the radar. Nobody was really looking for Nicholas. Yeah. If anything, this is if you committed this crime and covered it up, you're jeopardizing yourself more by bringing True. scrutiny onto something that doesn't need to be scrutinized. So I guess I tend to lean more toward the family didn't have anything to do with it. But there are a lot of doubts and I just don't know. Yeah. I think I'm like, I'm like 60, 40. I'm like 60, 40 that they did something and you're like 60, 40 that they didn't. And (laughs) I could easily be swayed uh, the other, you know, 40%. Like I, you know, I really, this case was, we talked about this a little bit before we started recording about how like usually it's very clear for us to kind of form our own conclusions and have like our own opinions of the cases that we cover. But this one was really like a bizarre one in the way that we both are kind of like, I don't know. Like it could be, it could be. There are not very many cases where I'm just like, I have no idea, but Oh, I just don't know. I just don't know. I go back and forth and back and forth. And even leading into recording this, I changed my mind a hundred yeah. times. Right. Which, you know, we like to share our thoughts here at the end. Obviously, our job is just to give you the facts and the research and the information. Yes. But I really want to know what you guys think too. Yes. Yes. But if it wasn't the family, what really happened to Nicholas? <sighs> There's a possibility that it was a stranger abduction. Maybe he tried to hitchhike. Beverly says in the documentary that she can easily picture him accepting a ride from a stranger. Maybe. Kids do get kidnapped. Yep. Was he just a runaway? And did he just strike out and start a new life? Yeah. Probably not realistic for a 13-year-old. Right. I don't know. I just don't know. What I do know is that missing children deserve our attention, even if they're runaways, even if they aren't involved in super weird things like this case. Yes. I think Nicholas does get lost in this case a lot. Yes. Yes. There are so many other characters involved, and it's easy to forget that there's a child that went missing that's still missing to this day. Yeah. Yeah. And let's talk about Frederick. So... Watching the documentary, I watched it and I was like, wow, that was a that was a wild experience. And I watched it a few days ago. And over the last couple of days, I've been thinking about it more and more. And the more that I think about it, the more unsettled the whole thing makes me feel. It is 
extremely unsettling. (laughs) Instead of feeling like, oh, I learned so much and I'm like ready to move on. I'm like, if you watch the documentary, it is not like other documentaries that I've seen where there are like, you know, graphic photos and like things that are going to be burned into your brain in that way. But there's something about Frederick when he looks face forward at the camera and just knowing the type of person that would choose to pretend to be someone who was a real person, who was a real missing child. And there are times in the documentary where he's like very smiley mm-hmm. and it's very eerie. It's eerie. He's very eerie. I think he had a very sad life. A very sad life. I understand why he went down this path. Yes. But I think at some point it crossed over from survival to something else. Yes. And I think that it was a challenge and a need, like a psychological need. Almost like a sense of victory of like getting away with it. And it is interesting to me that, you know, he was sentenced to six years in prison. I wonder if during his time in prison, if he got some psychological help. Because then when he was released, uh, only several months later, did he get arrested again for doing the exact same thing. And I feel like at least he should be on a radar where (laughs) people are kind of keeping tabs on him uh, to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And it's also very interesting to me that now he lives like a normal life with a wife and children. Because not a lot of times that we see someone who comes from such a difficult background they don't always tend to get that happy right. ending. You know, they don't tend to get what we would consider like a normal adult life. And so it's very interesting to me that he is just in France, you know, living his life. Yeah, it's a lot. And honestly, the documentary is so good. Yes. And the New Yorker article, if you enjoy reading articles, the New Yorker article, The Chameleon, is I would say more interesting even than the documentary. It it goes into so much detail. The journalist is in close contact with Frederick several times throughout the course of the the article. And he has spoken to him and met with him many times. And you just get so much insight into him and his psychology in both the documentary and the New Yorker article. So you can find those linked in our show notes. I highly recommend you dig into it if you're interested. Yeah. Please tell us what you think about this case. Oh my gosh, please. We want to know. I had never really heard about this. And so like now it's kind of one of those things where like when you read a a book that you really like and no one's read it and you're waiting for someone to talk about it with, that's what we need from our listeners. We need to know your theory. Exactly. We need to know what you think because otherwise it's going to eat my brain alive. Yes. And I'm going to have that unresolved feeling. So please... For the sake of my mental sanity, please comment and tell us yes. what you think. <laughs> Find us on social media to let us know at Body Parts Pod. That is the extremely strange case of Nicholas Barclay. And now it's time for self care and prepare. So, for my first self care tip, I am going to say that you should use Vaseline as a skin moisturizer. And here is my weird story as to how I discovered this. All right. So around the time I got pregnant with my daughter, 
I started getting this really weird skin thing. And I have weird skin things all the time. I get yeah. hives like every few months. You have baby sensitive skin. I have baby sensitive skin. I'm in and out of the dermatologist all the time. They're always telling me they don't know what is wrong. In this case, I thought it was maybe something hormonal. My skin was so dry, but uh, you know, my midwife didn't know, and the dermatologist was like, "Well, it's not really like a pregnancy thing. This isn't. There are pregnancy-related rashes, but sure. this didn't seem to be. But it did eventually go away. They would prescribe me prescription strength hydrocortisone, and I would put it on, and it would go away." And then a couple months later, it would come back and it kept happening, kept happening. But then it kept happening after I had her. And I was just like, what is going on? So finally, out of desperation, I slathered my skin in Vaseline one night. It's like super, super dry, peely everywhere. Like yeah. extreme. And then the next day it was gone. Yeah. And then when it happened again, I did it again. And so now I just cover my face in Vaseline every night. Yes. <laughs> and my skin has never looked or felt better in my life. So it's funny that this is your self-care tip because, you know, I am on TikTok and <laughs> I I love to watch me some TikToks. And uh, somehow, sometimes I get these skincare makeup regime videos. Uh, usually your TikTok is more like things that are more catered to what you are interested in. But sometimes these things pop up. And there's this trend. It's called slugging. Like you're slugging your skin when you use Vaseline or petroleum jelly mm. on your skin because it looks and it feels like, you know, yeah. snail trails. And so I was like, well, I have to try this. And so I got... It's like the CeraVe brand of oh. healing ointment. Yeah. And so I use it on my face oh my at night and also on my hands because I wash my hands so much at work and I use so much hand sanitizer yes. that no matter if it's the winter or the warmer months, my hands get really dry. And so it has really made a difference to me as well. Yeah. If you do it, like you don't need a ton, right? Right. It's that kind of texture that you really like. It spreads very easily and it's very shiny. You know, mm -hmm. Matthew will joke with me and say like, I can see my reflection in yes. your skincare, you know? I know. I'm always like smothered up. Yes. And I will say it helps if you do the silk or satin pillowcase. Yes. And wash your pillowcase very often, obviously. Yes. Oh, and the other thing is make sure you sleep with your hair up or something. Yes. Because it will get on there. And then you'll get Vaseline in your hair. Yeah. And I, I sleep in my, my like silk bonnet. Yeah. But one night I hadn't put it on. Oh my God. And then my hair was like sticking out oh my, my God. face. No, that's miserable. It, it was awful. That's miserable. But yeah, it's awesome. And my prepare tip, you know, I don't really know if it's like a prepare, I don't know if it counts as a prepare, but I want to start a murders club. And solve cold cases? Um, like Charlie yes, Parker? I'm totally down. Charlie Parker, we love you. And amazing. Like, <laughs> a murders club? I feel like that's just the next step with what we can do as podcasters. You know, like we just have to do as it. As soakers, we can come together and yes. solve some cold cases, oh you guys. Oh my gosh. The Soakers Murder Club? Oh my God. What a great title for a book. <laughs> Okay, let us know what you think because I am all about this plan. I think collectively, oh yes, with our true crime knowledge aficionados, we could come together yes. and actually solve cold cases like he did. Uh, we got this, you guys. We just need you to agree to do it with us. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, Soakers, we'll leave it here for today. Tune in with us next week to hear another tale of true crime. Until then, self-care for the best, prepare for the worst, but most importantly, take care of yourself. We'll catch you next time on Bath and Body Parts. Bye! Bye! Body Parts merch, snag your shirts, mugs, fanny packs, towels, and more at bathandbodypartspodcast.com slash merch. If you'd like to support the show and get access to VIP perks like ad-free content, early access to episodes, and extra episodes each month, along with special segments and exclusive merch, including the Bath and Body Parts Bath Bomb, you can become a soaker, super soaker, or bath bomber on our Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash bathandbodyparts to get started.